This is God's word from Colossians 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that he was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Good morning, church. If you don't know me, my name is John Fox, and uh, thank you, Dale. I was not expecting that. It's not in the service order. I know you like to mix things up. Um, but, uh, and Wally, sorry, apologies. I told you you never have to get on stage, but I'm not the one who did that, so that's uh, it's not my fault. Um, well, today, yeah, we're going to be talking about hope, and I'm so thankful for, um, like Dale said, all the women who came up here and decorated the church. It's very festive. It does help symbolize some of those hopeful uh, items for us, the sentiment. And um, just along those lines, in terms of sentiment, uh, before I pray and begin here, I would say that tomorrow is the end of the 21-day review period for our members, uh, where we uh, sent out some information asking for them um, to affirm Reese Woodruff as our new lead pastor, and we've been working through that, you know, for some months now. And uh, uh, tomorrow's the end of the 21-day review, so uh, I can't tell you anything. <laughs> I can't tell you anything, but you should be hopeful. Uh, you'll be getting some communication this week that uh, should be exciting. So, if you would, let's go ahead and <laughs> that's it. That's all you get. That's all you get. Um, Would you pray with me as we begin here? Lord, we do pause and come to you and uh, just acknowledge we have so many different things running in the background right now. We have so many different desires, so many hopes, and they often seem to hit us hardest at, at uh, the holidays and this time of year. Lord, I pray that as we open your word now and, and we hear from you, God, you give us ears to listen, you give us eyes to see, and a heart that actually comprehends this hope that you have promised to us in your son. And we ask in his name, amen. Well, today does mark the first Sunday for us where we are going through an Advent series. And if you are New to Advent, Advent simply means coming or arrival, and in this season we celebrate the coming or the arrival of Jesus in the incarnation. It's no surprise to you, probably. And uh, this year, we every year we do a different you know different kind of series. This year it's just about as generic as you can get. So <laughs> we focus on just each kind of idea or word every Sunday. And today's Sunday is going to be focusing on hope. Next Sunday, I believe uh, it is, it is uh, joy, or maybe that's three Sundays, I don't remember. This is the one I'm preaching, that's what, I'm, that's what I know about. <clears throat> so uh, today as we talk about hope, I just want to run some stuff past you here. 
talking and thinking about hope. You know, I've spent a little bit of time thinking about it. And like I said, when I prayed, I think it's something that we all have on our minds these days. Not uh, too long ago, there was a um, there was an individual who wrote for the Seattle Times, and he was talking about Seattle and his hopes for Seattle, his hopes um, for Seattle in relation to having his family come in town. So his family comes in town, and he wants to tell everybody, look at this great place, look at the great city that I live in. And so he starts walking them through. And here's, here's the quote for you. He said, I'm hardened to see tourists coming to Seattle. Seattle has been and will be a great city. When my family from Colorado visited, we went to Pike Place Market and Environs. Drug addicts asking for money, people confronting us at spotlights, and a general sense of dread and foreboding largely defined our experience. I was embarrassed on behalf of my city. Seattle can be great. I know we will get there one day again. Do you hear the hope involved in that statement? It's, it's pregnant with hope, you might say. There's, there's so much anticipation, so much expectation of, I really want everyone to experience and everyone to know how great this city is that I live in. This is my city. And you, you can say a lot of things about Seattle and the state of Seattle or greater Seattle area that we live in, but there is nonetheless this sentiment of hope. And it really drives a whole lot of our lives. So today, when we look into the passage, this is not just a, uh, a generic passage. This is a passage on hope. Paul has reasons why he writes the letters he does in the New Testament or the other authors. And uh, Paul very much is going to be bringing up this idea of hope. In fact, in Colossians 1, the passage we're in today, he he really uses the first chapter to emphasize hope. He uses the word, the Greek word for it, three times in the first chapter. And he kind of leaves it off after that because he's trying to remind the believers that he's writing to of their hope. And I think we need that. I think we desperately need that today. I uh, don't have any other quotes for you, but going through this week, looking at other reports, Pew Research or Gallup polls, um, Younger generations especially need hope. 42%, uh, the normal statistic is 42% of Gen Z have some sort of, um, some sort of major depression. 42%. And that is certainly up from the 20 or 23% for millennials. So hope is definitely something that we struggle with. We have expectations. Thankfully, this, past, this passage teaches us about hope. So uh, our main point for today is simply this. In line with Advent, that Jesus gives us ultimate hope. Jesus gives us ultimate hope. There are other hopes out there that we'll talk about and we'll see, but Jesus gives us our ultimate hope. And there's three things that this passage small passage, will tell us about hope. First, it tells us why we need hope. Second, it tells us what hope is. And last, it tells us what hope does. 
With that, let's start reading here. So Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This section of scripture comes with uh, some difficult concepts that we need to delve into. Paul, you know, there's that place um, in uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, where Peter's talking about Paul and he says, yeah, he writes some hard things, like they're hard to understand, to which everybody says, oh, thank God, I know somebody else has this problem too, you know? This is one of those ways that Paul starts to to the Colossians to say, let me give you some complicated ideas. Not shy away from them. Let me give you some complicated ideas. So here's the first one. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? What does it mean that Christ has afflictions for us or for the world that have not yet been, that will be? And somehow Christ is working that out with Paul so that Paul is vicariously suffering on the behalf of Christ for us. Complicated. That's as complicated as I want to get this morning. But to say it simply, Paul is saying that his view of persecution or his view of suffering and bringing the gospel message to the Colossians was a necessary affliction on Christ's behalf. So for the Colossians, there's all kinds of things that they were um, going through at the time. In the Roman world, persecution has started for Christians, this sect that was taking ground quite quickly. And so in order to bring the gospel to Colossae, Paul had to suffer. He had to walk the whole way. He's going from village to village, town to town, city to city. Not only that, he faces persecution from his own countrymen. And whatever way that you could talk about it, Paul is suffering. And yet that suffering is done in such a way as to say, my suffering is going to help you know Christ better. In which Paul says, this is what is remaining for Christ's affliction. And Later, towards the end of the sermon, we'll kind of pick up this idea a little bit more in terms of what you have to do as a believer in Jesus. But at the beginning, Paul's just going to say that I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, we could say a number more things about it, but one thing is certainly this. There are sufferings. There are sufferings in the world. There are sufferings in the Christian life. Paul doesn't avoid it. He addresses it head on. And these sufferings, inevitably, for the believer, relate to hope. Here's another way that Paul talks about it in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. He also uses the same word for glory in Colossians, the hope of glory. In verse 24, now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is not that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Paul is essentially saying, as everybody knows, 
that to hope innately means that you are not satisfied. I think everybody can agree on that, that you're not satisfied. You want something or you need something. You have an expectation or an anticipation for something. For the Christian, though, this takes a little bit different form, or at least we talk about it differently. Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to start off the sermon with one of the big names. Thomas Aquinas, he's one of the biggest in church history. He says about hope this. Hope is a future good, difficult but possible to attain by means of the divine assistance on whose help it leans. So Aquinas is uh, he's one of the brightest minds in Christian history. I encourage you to uh, look at my notes and click on the links and read some more about him and um, his work. But he's going to say that hope is not just this uh, euphoric general thing out there. Hope is actually something that we need to depend on God for. And he breaks it down a couple different ways. I won't go into the detail, but essentially I would say that there are capital H hopes or hope. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus and the incarnation. But there's all kinds of lowercase hopes that we have in life, aren't there? You got hopes about your job, maybe about a, a bonus or a raise. You got hopes for family members. There's all kinds of hope involved. Sometimes, probably most of the time, I think we can recognize them as lowercase h's, hopes. But the way that Aquinas is going to talk about this is to say that hope, however you're talking about hope, is going to be something that you have to lean on God for. Why? Because he's the one who ultimately gives hope. And I think the way that this really hits home to us is is that uh, we, we just experience life. We go through life, we set our hopes on things, and those hopes are dashed often. So we kind of learn growing up through life that nothing else really works. Hopes don't hold water. This is very important for Paul writing to the Colossians because we could say um, that there were heretical hopes going on. It's a strong way to talk about it, but let me explain. There's a number of reasons, which I said Paul wrote to the Colossians, um, and there's a number of heresies that are going on. So when Paul's writing, talking to the Colossians about all the things that he says, he's not just trying to encourage them. He's, he's, he has ideas. He has particular heresies in mind that have taken root, maybe some good things, capital Uh, It's lowercase h's that have now become capital H, hope. So here's a few things that he's writing against. Ceremonialism. In uh, chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, he'll talk about religious festivals. Or in 2.11 and and 3.11, he's going to talk about circumcision. For the Colossians, they've got hopes in mind. And these involve ceremonies that they grew up doing. Jewish traditions, or maybe extra Jewish traditions. We have uh, certainly, well, we consider the Bible, the Old Testament, but then there's extra writings. There's all kinds of extra material, and those take on the form of ceremonialism, by which people then take it to say, now I'm right with God. 
that is actually heretical, or aestheticism. That was a, a big argument during the days from the Greek world. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are ideas that are happening in their time where they say, if, if I put my hope in being somebody who's extremely moral, then I will have a good life. Angel worship, something we don't typically do in our society, but certainly that was a hope of theirs. And we see this early in the Catholic Church as well. If we can name all the angels, if we can identify all of them, and then we worship them, then we'll be protected. Or a uh, depreciation of Christ. It's implied in Paul's emphasis on the supremacy of Christ. As Paul's going to talk about how magnificent and high and lofty and supreme and powerful Christ is, there's some problem going on in the Colossian church here where they say, Jesus is powerful, but is he really all-powerful? Or this is perhaps the biggest at the writing of the New Testament, secret knowledge, Gnosticism. If you're not familiar with Gnosticism, it's the idea that if, if you have the secret knowledge, if you talk to the right person, if they tell you the right information, uh, if you read the right manuscript, if you get some uh, really old document, then it will unlock for you the secret of the universe. Then you will be able to know and understand what real knowledge is, and that will essentially be your salvation. Gnosticism. Secret knowledge. And uh, last, reliance on human wisdom and tradition. These elements fall into different categories, Jewish, Gnostic, Greek. What they all have in common is that they're going to be ways in which people of Paul's day could exercise their hope. If I could be somebody like that, if I could have that, if I could do this, then I will have whatever satisfies me. And Paul is going to have none of it. He's going to write directly against it. We have ways that we seek heretical hope as well. Let me just run a few by you. I am needed. Some of you love to be needed. You love it. You wake up in the morning and you think, man, I would just love to do something for somebody. That could be very altruistic. It could be very servant-minded. It could be very noble. But there's something about the human heart that then says, I have to be needed. If somebody's living their life and they don't need me, I can't stand it. Or other ways to put your hope. I'm beautiful. And what happens? It doesn't work. You're going to lose your beauty. It's just a matter of time. What about your strength? This is another big one for us. I'm able-bodied. I can do things. Maybe I'm a marathon runner. You're going to die. You're going to lose your strength. It's going to run out. Maybe it's your wisdom. I'm wise. I spent years accumulating knowledge so I can make the right choice and everybody else makes the wrong choice. Or maybe it's just straight money. I'm wealthy. You can't take it with you. Or you're intelligent. 
you're savvy, culturally adept, you're competent, you're compassionate. I think that's a big one up here. People are very proud about how compassionate they are. I'm powerful. These are just ways in which we can internalize and say, I put my hope in this, but it does not turn out. It will let you down. And there's so many other things. We could talk about the physical world, my house, my car, my property, my stuff. This is a big time of the year for stuff. We need hope because there is something that we're missing. I think everyone can agree on it. There's something that we're missing. Why do you hope if you're not missing something? But as believers, we mainly need to hope in God because nothing else works. That's what Paul is essentially saying here with suffering involved. There is suffering, there is loss, and in relation to all of our hopes, they fade. Power fades, you can't buy your health, loved ones pass away. If you spend so much of your life investing yourself in an inordinate amount, too much, and someone dies, and now you have no purpose for life. Too much. You put too much of your hope in them. But what is secure? What's lasting? What is a hope that will never let you down? Paul is going to talk about this next because first, we see that we certainly need hope. We need it. Because we all experience it. We all experience the letdown. And if you haven't yet, you're going to. But what is hope? Paul continues, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's going to bring out another complicated idea here. And the way he's going to do that is essentially to focus on three words. First is gospel. He's, this is a word that comes up in the passage. In uh, verse 21 and 23, he's going to talk about the gospel. And it should be no surprise to us that as Paul talks about our hope, our biggest, our best, our capital H hope, he's going to talk about the gospel. And as he does... He's certainly going to talk about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. This is core to the Christian hope, to the Christian faith. You have no hope as a Christian without Jesus. So Paul breaks down the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on our behalf. That is very much our hope. And you might say the gospel kernel, as a number of people talk about it. But beyond that, he's also going to talk about the mystery. You see, in verses 26 and 27, he's going to wrap this idea of gospel into another idea. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So what is this mystery? Um, if, if, uh, if you want to do your own studying, you can, or look at my notes. But the word mystery in Greek, mysterion, is one that comes up frequently in the New Testament. Paul loves this word. He loves it. And he's going to use it a lot, mostly in Ephesians, but secondarily in Colossians, where he's going to talk about something that was previously hidden, not just hidden, but unknowable, 
and now has been made known by virtue of a revelation, divine revelation. So what is this mystery? Um, the mystery is going to certainly involve Christ, but the, this, is, this is so cool. I really like this. The root word for mystery in Greek is mu. Not like M-O-O, it's M-U-O. But mu means to shut the mouth. So when Paul's talking about the mystery here, and he loves this word, the mystery of the Christian faith, the mystery of Jesus, the mystery of the gospel, he's going to say, this mystery, you've never heard of any kind of news like this. This will make you shut your mouth. This word, this mystery, not only yours, this mystery shuts the mouth of every angelic being in the heavens. When they hear it, they can't believe what they're hearing. This is a true mystery. There's, there's no degree of human ingenuity, intellect, power, capacity, or any other creature in creation that could uncover this mystery. We want to talk about secret knowledge and Gnosticism. This is way past that. Nobody would ever know. Nobody could ever know unless God were to explain it, unless he were to reveal it. So Paul uses this word again. Ephesians 3, 8 through 9. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So how does Paul talk about this mystery? What is this mystery that he's espousing? Well, when we look in Colossians, he's going to talk about Christ. He's going to talk about sin and forgiveness and gospel. But let me give you a different way of thinking about this mystery. In Colossians, he goes through what is known as the list of supremacy of Christ. All the ways in which Christ is superior to everything in creation. And here's just a a snapshot of the list. That this Jesus that came, prophesied, born, he's the image of the invisible God. That's the first thing to blow your mind. The invisible God, which no human can see, he's the image of the God. He's also the firstborn over all creation. Meaning before, not that he was created first, unlike some heresies, but that he was there at the beginning. Before anything was made. However you track the timeline for the earth, old creation, new creation, any creation outside of that, under it, above it, he's firstborn over all of it. The one who, through whom, and for whom all things were created. So it's not just that Jesus was the one who was before everything, but now he's actually the one that created everything, and he's the one for which all of it exists. The one by whom all things hold together. So if you even say, well, maybe at one point that was the case. No, today and tomorrow and the next day, all of it holds together for Jesus. The head of the church. He's the one who ultimately decides what happens with the church, his people. 
He's the one who is constantly, faithfully maturing and perfecting his bride, washing her clean with the water of the word. The firstborn from the dead. Not only is he the first before all creation, he's also the first one to rise from the dead. Nobody else has done that. The one in whom the fullness of God dwells. He's not only the image of God, whatever capacities that you could talk about that God has dwell bodily in Jesus. How does that work? The heavenly and earthly reconciler of all things. He's the mediator between God and man and creation. The one who shed his blood on the cross. Besides all of these other points of his resume, the one that Jesus holds up as his favorite is I died for them. Now, that's going to be a way of talking about certainly the gospel and everything that the gospel gives us. But Paul, in this mystery language, is going to extend this. And here's the truth that shuts everyone's mouth. He's going to say something absolutely ludicrous. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. So not just the Jews, but now the Greeks, the Gentiles, many of us. And he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. However you think about Jesus and his qualifications in this list that Paul has given, now Paul says... That's in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now, this doesn't mean that we can shoot lasers with our eyes. Okay? I'm not saying weird things like that. All right? So hear hear me there. What I'm saying is that there is a spiritual mystery for the believer where on the one hand, God clearly says, if you believe in Jesus, if you turn from your sins, if you have placed your faith in him, If you are a new creation, Christ lives in you. Christ dwells in you. Not Christ like stayed at your house. He's with you. He's in you constantly. This could mean all kinds of of things. It means a minimum of two, I think. Number one, it means you're not alone. There has never been a believer, never been a believer in history or ever will that is alone. You could be marooned. You could be imprisoned. You are never alone. Even in these dark days that we have at the turn of the year here, when everybody loses their mind, you're never alone. Two I think we, we could summarize it to say that God will take care of you. This is the whole picture of Ephesians 5 when Paul's talking about how husbands should love their wives. Nobody ever hated his own body. And what is the church, the body of Christ? If you're in Christ, God will take care of you. Why? Because Christ lives in you. He's with you constantly. This is the kind of hope that a believer has that pervades everything else in life. Yes, 
your lowercase h's will fail. They will. But there's a capital H hope that the gospel offers us that is imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Christians, out of all people, need not worry. Need not be filled with anxiety or depression. And I'm not saying that depression doesn't come. I have experienced very profound times of depression in my own life. In the midst of them, God is there. This is the language all through the Psalms that we see. There are two Psalms in the entire Psalter that end on the worst note possible. All they say is darkness is my only friend. That very much captures the reality for us as humans. But the reality of how we feel, we can feel a certain way and still say, God is there. He is with me. So this is what hope is in the hope of the gospel. It does shine bright, but it doesn't only shine bright for us. The gospel also tells us what hope does. And so Paul, as he continues here in verses 28 and 29, will say this, that we proclaim him. We proclaim him. How do we proclaim him? Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul immediately moves for the Colossians from this deep sense of hope and stabilizing nature to then say, but it's not just for you. It's not just for me. The overflow of this hope is to proclaim. And so, how do we proclaim? We warn people. We don't like this as, as a culture anymore, but there's real warning involved. When you see your friends, when you see your family start to wreck their lives, all kinds of unbiblical, demonic worldviews going on, maybe it's substance abuse, there's real warning involved. Maybe, maybe it's not that stuff. Maybe it's just super moralism like Paul's writing about to the Colossians. I'll be fine if I'm the best Boy Scout in the world. There's warning involved for the believer. And there's teaching with all wisdom. This does not, you you do not have the capacities to do this the way God wants. It requires immense wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There is There is a real duty for the believer here to have this responsibility of proclaiming, warning, teaching other people about this great gospel, about God and the realities of heaven and hell and the state of their souls. Yes, but it's done with a motivation of discipleship. Does that come through? So that, purpose clause, we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is how Paul lived He meets a new person, and he has this glorified vision for them. Oh, I can see them being a believer. Yeah, I can see them teaching. Yeah, I can see them preaching. I can see them leading service projects. I can see it. He desires for that to happen. And so should we. But probably the most important thing here is that he says, I labor for this. I labor for it. 
No mistake about it. I'm the one who is suffering here. I'm the one who walked 30 miles to Colossae. I am the one who was beaten with rods. I am nobody else. It was me. I'm the one who was shipwrecked. I. I labor for this. Striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. This is one of those things in the Bible that a lot of people would call contradictions. How can that be? How can you have both things? I don't think it's a contradiction. It is a mystery. That in all of Paul's laboring, all of his striving, or all of yours, this Christmas season, when you go to spend time with family, and you've got the silence moment, and then you're wondering, do I talk about God? Do I talk about my church? Do I talk about what they believe? Do I share what I believe? In those moments, you are doing the labor, yes, but you're doing it with God's strength who works powerfully in you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. That's certainly Paul's point. So this hope is something that changes you. This hope also does something. It changes others. And to go back to Aquinas here, at the end of Aquinas' life, he was writing uh, extensively on hope. He, he was very caught up with it. And his, his breakdown of uh, the virtues, it was certainly one of the cardinal virtues. But as Aquinas is writing about hope, he's exploring new possibilities with it. Uh, he's seeing new realities to it. And he's actually, uh, this is how he died, was writing on hope. Very profound. And so just to take a, a page out of Aquinas's story here, I would like to read to you uh, something from a uh, female theologian um, who has worked on understanding Aquinas and I think understands him quite well. She says this, Many scholars believe that he was working on this text, this compendium, when he died, under the title, that it is possible to reach the kingdom. Thomas begins, we must go on to show that man can reach the kingdom. Otherwise, if he would be, if he would be hoped for in vain and prayed for in vain, he gives as the first reason for our hope the divine promise, quoting Jesus' words from Luke twelve thirty two, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Second, Aquinas continues, An evident example shows that attainment of the kingdom is possible. There, the text abrupt, abruptly trails off. It may have been the very last sentence that the angelic doctor ever wrote. It is as if God took St. Thomas at his words. We must go on to show that man can reach that kingdom and use St. Thomas himself to complete the evident example. What a beautiful story. When I go, however I go, I would love for the hope of the future kingdom and the impending kingdom and the inaugurated kingdom of Jesus Christ to be filling my vision. I would love it. 
And that's what hope can do for us. It not only gives us peace in the present, it gives us a future. It gives us a vision that this life with Christ, this all-powerful, supreme one who lives in you, he will see you to himself and us all together in his kingdom. Let's pray. Well, Father, I do pray, I ask that you would give us a vision of this elevated kingdom, this city of God. While it's so easy for us to focus on our own city and the glory and the hope of it, or our own families, or our own lives, so many hopes, Lord, would you make our hope in you the highest hope that we have? We thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of your son. Thank you for his incarnation coming to offer us this hope. Lord, we ask that we would be found faithful with the hope, stewarding the hope that you've given to us. Ask in your son's name, amen.